Peter Chapman's going to read to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 to 11, verse 1. And you'll find it on page 811 in the Red Pew Bible. Hi, everyone. Let's, uh, let's read God's Word. For I, do not know, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples, and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the same loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the Lord, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience' sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal without thank with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So, 
Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks or the Church of God. Even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that um, uh, now we'd be able to uh, uh, focus on uh, what uh, you were saying to us in this passage of scripture. Father, we pray that uh, the, uh, your word would not fall on deaf ears, but uh, rather that on, on ears that are really eager to learn more about you and, Father, hearts that are willing to obey you. And we pray that as we are shaped by your word this morning, that we would be people who seek not our own interests, but rather that we put you first, others second, and ourselves last. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. They say that pride comes before a fall. Where does that saying come from, by the way? Does anyone know? Any ideas? It's a very common saying in our culture. Pride comes before a fall. It comes from, it's from Proverbs, that's right. Um, it, it's, it's from the Bible. It actually comes from Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, uh, which uh, in our translation says pride goes before destruction, but the same thing. By the way, the type of pride that it's talking about there is not uh, the you know it's not like the person who's pr- uh, who takes pride in their work, uh, like the person who does a good job of things. It's the the pride which it's it's about being arrogant. It's about uh, thinking uh, too highly of yourself, uh, being overly confident, not being humble. Uh, It's no wonder that even non-Christians love this proverb because it's so real, isn't it? It it, It's so true to our experience of life because the proud person uh, becomes so confident in themselves that they they get a false picture of themselves uh, and they're blind to the realities and sometimes they're blind to the pitfalls and the dangers that lie ahead of them. Now, what about us as Christians? Um, <clears throat> can pride sometimes come before a fall for us as Christians? Well, I want us to think about um, this issue of being too settled in our Christian lives. Um, do you know what I mean by that? I mean, it's good to be established in our Christian lives, but sometimes we can be too settled. Um, So settled that we become overly confident in ourselves and we we think of ourselves as being the mature Christians, the the strong Christians. Uh, And because of that, we can become blasé and we can become not so careful about, uh, about temptation and sin. We let our guard down and fall into traps. Uh, brothers and sisters, when we look at um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as we're doing today, and it would be good if you could have that open in front of you, we, there is one verse in this chapter that kind of sums up um, the message, in my view, 
And uh, you see it there in chapter 10 in verse 12, where it says this. Uh, do you see it? Why don't we try reading this out together? Is there too high a cringe factor in doing that? Come on, we clap together today. Let's, let's read chap- verse, chapter 10, verse 12 together, because this really is the take-home message. And uh, this is summarising the chapter. Let's do it after three. One, two, three. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Now, we know that there was a problem in the Corinthian church, don't we? And uh, if you could sum it up, there was a problem with pride. Pride. Uh, A couple of weeks back, can you remember back that far? Some of you weren't with us a couple of weeks back because you're all on holidays up in Northern Territory and places like that. But in in chapter 8, we saw that there was an issue in the church about food offered to idols. Do you remember that? Okay. Do you want me to recap the issue? Yeah, I think I better. All right. Uh, Corinth was a very pagan city, uh, big cosmopolitan, melting pot, Mediterranean seaport kind of city. And uh, there, was the, there were lots of temples in Corinth um, to different gods, uh, the, the Greek gods, obviously, uh, Roman gods, uh, Egyptian gods as well. And a very common feature in um, pagan temple worship was uh, that food would be offered up as a sacrifice uh, at an altar to, to an idol. Um, now, often the food that was sacrificed to the idol would then be used um, to provide the, the, uh, the food for a temple uh, banquet, a temple feast. And this was very, very important part of pagan culture, uh, the temple feast. And so people would come together, they would enjoy this meal together in the temple of food which had been offered up to an idol. Not, not all of the food that had been offered up to the idols would be eaten at the temple feasts and uh, the leftover food would um, actually go to the marketplace and uh, would be retailed through the butchers uh, to uh, ordinary people going about doing their shopping. So the question was, um, do Christians have the spiritual freedom to eat food which somebody else has offered up to a pagan idol? Or would that be sinful? Now, uh, in the church there were those people who were classified as being the, the weaker um, brothers and sisters and there were those who were classified as being the stronger brothers and sisters. Can you remember what conclusion the stronger brothers and sisters came to on this question of whether or not food offered to an idol could be eaten? Remember what conclusion they came to? Well, that, they, they reasoned like this. Um, they said that an, an idol is just a block of wood um, or a block of stone. Uh, the idol does not actually exist. It's not real. Um, it's just an inanimate object. And the food is a gift from God. So 
and that's okay to eat, and because the idol doesn't really exist, then it's fine to eat food that's been offered up to an idol. Now, uh, at one level, they were quite correct. Um, they, and that's why they were the stronger Christians, because they had that knowledge that that was okay. But Paul has got reason to warn them about how they're using their knowledge and, and, and this freedom that they know that they have. And so uh, in chapter 10, verses 1 through to 11, Paul says, I want to remind you guys of something which happened in the Old Testament. Now, I know we've read this already, but I'd like us to read it again, not, not aloud together, because <laughs> uh, we, we need to focus on this. Let me read verse, chapter 10, verses 1 to 11. He says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. All right? Now, uh, which generation of Israelites um, is this referring to? It was the generation of Israelites who participated in the Exodus. Right? Um, uh, these were the people who God rescued miraculously out of Egypt. Now, uh, there, was there any greater demonstration in the Old Testament of what it means to be saved by God than the Exodus? Can you think of any greater demonstration in the Old Testament of salvation greater than the Exodus? Well, no, there isn't. No, I don't think there is. No, I mean, God, think about it, God split the sea so that hundreds of thousands of Israelites could, could escape from Pharaoh, could escape from Egypt and could enter into the Promised Land. Well, they had to get over the Jordan first. But God split the sea. Um, notice in verses 1 to 4, the miracles that Paul mentions. In verse 2, uh, as they wandered through the wilderness, uh, they were guided by God during the day by the cloud. Uh, in verse 3, uh, God miraculously fed them the bread that came down from heaven. Uh, miraculously fed by God. In, in, in verse 4, Moses hit a rock with his staff 
and water came gushing out of it. I mean, there was no group of Old Testament people that had experienced God's saving hand uh, in such an obvious and such an incredible way as these people did. And so, uh, if there was ever a group of people who could be more confident in their relationship with God, it had to be them, right? Okay, you get the picture? But what happened? Well, in verse 7, they became idolaters. And they got stuck into some good old-fashioned pagan revelry. How did that happen? Well, I wonder if you'll come with me back to Exodus chapter 32. Uh, Exodus chapter 32, which um, you'll find on page 63. Verses 1 to 6. Now, Moses uh, is up on the top of the mountain, Mount Sinai, uh, meeting with God. Uh, That, of course, is where he was uh, given the Ten Commandments. And um, he was taking his time up there. In verse 1, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the, the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now, there was no one who knew salvation like this mob did. But who were they worshipping? Yeah, in verse 4, they've gone and bowed down to an idol made of, of gold and silver, of metal. Uh, And yet in verse 5, who were they worshipping? They were worshipping, what does it say? The Lord. What are they doing? (laughs) Uh, They're pretty confused, aren't they? (laughs) Uh, They're worshipping this golden calf and saying, well, you know, this is the God who brought you up out of Egypt. And they're also worshipping the Lord. Uh, Are they having a bet each way? What are they doing? Um, And does God put up with that? Well, the answer to that's got to be no, doesn't it? As an aside, do we see uh, any of this kind of fusion of the worship of the true God and of idolatry happening around us or in our own society and culture. 
What's happening in Rome this weekend? Right, in the name of the God of the Bible, uh, thousands of people have gathered together to worship a woman uh, who the church has declared or will declare to be a special person to whom you can pray. And already we're hearing stories of people who have uh, been saying that they have been praying to Mary MacKillop and uh, that their prayers, they believe, have been answered. When, of course, uh, to pray to anyone other than God through Jesus is idolatry and must be condemned, must be condemned. Uh, We must stand against that sort of thing because it's condemned by God. God doesn't put up with this sort of idolatry and this eclectic fusion of uh, worshipping other idols at the same time as worshipping himself. And back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, Paul says that that generation of Israelites were condemned and judged because of their idolatry. And when you think about that, it's scary, isn't it? Because of all of the people, uh, you would reckon... Uh, that of all of the Old Testament people, you'd think that the the people who with their own very eyes had seen the Red Sea parted uh, and who who had escaped across it without getting their feet wet, uh, you'd think that if anyone was going to stay faithful to God, it would be them. They'd seen these big demonstrations of God's power. But yet, The freedom of being saved from Egypt is just a shadow of the spiritual freedom that we have received. Verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. Now, what it's saying is that the freedom of God's people in coming out of Egypt in the Exodus was symbolic. Uh, It symbolised and it pointed to a greater freedom, a spiritual freedom, which ultimately came uh, in the fulfilment of the ages, which is in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Because when we trust in the gospel, we are freed, aren't we? Uh, we are freed from the slavery to sin and the condemnation of sin. We're freed from that. And we are freed in order to enter into a relationship with God uh, to which the promised land pointed and was a symbol of. That is the fulfilment of the ages in verse 11. We are the recipients of the fulfilment of the ages. The whole of the Old Testament finds its fulfilment in Christ. His death, his resurrection, and the growth of God's people, the church. And so these are warnings to us who have received a greater freedom than they did. But what does the proverb say? Pride comes before a fall. 
You see, if the Israelites, who were saved through the spectacular miracles of the Exodus, if they ended up worshipping an idol, then what makes us think that we could not end up worshipping idols too? It's a warning. But more than that, theirs was the lesser salvation. Uh, And in verse 5, God was not impressed with them. How much worse will it be if those of us who've received the greater salvation, if we fall prostrate before the idols of our day, Uh, the idols of materialism, um, the idols of workaholism, of careerism, those things which can take the place of God uh, as being first in our lives. Those things around which we squeeze our relationship with God. So bring this back to the issue of freedom in the Corinthian church. Uh, In verses 12 through to 22, Paul is a bit concerned for these so-called stronger brothers. Uh, They did have the freedom to eat food that someone else had offered up to an idol. Uh, That in itself is not sinful. They were right about that but they were also wrong. Uh, Sometimes there is a fine line between exercising our freedom and actually slipping into sin itself. That's what had happened in Corinth because uh, these so-called stronger Christians had gone too far um, with the exercise of their liberty. Um, Do you remember what the issue was in chapter 8, verse 10? Was it only the problem that uh, they were wrestling with what to do about the meat that they bought at the butcher shop? Or was it more than that? Well, it was more than that. In chapter 8, verse 10, uh, these so-called stronger Christians were actually participating in the banquets at the idols' feasts. They were doing that. Chapter 8, verse 10. And, of course, they would say, well, the idol's nothing. The food's a gift from God, and so who cares? Well, God cares. Uh, You see, it is true that all other gods are false. Uh, The only God who exists is the God of the Bible. All other gods are merely human inventions designed to replace the true God. Uh, They are man making God in man's image. They're not real. However, Satan is real. And we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, but I want us to look at it again. Uh, In chapter 10, verses 18 to 21, see what Paul says. He says, Consider the people of Israel. Do Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than him? 
Pride comes before a fall. And these so-called strong Christians, they knew it was okay to eat food offered to idols, but they were so confident that they really let their guard down. They didn't see the trap. And they ended up eating meals at the table of demons. Paul says, what are we trying to do here, folks? Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy and his anger? Well, they were just like the Israelites, on their knees before the golden calf. Now, can you imagine um, this letter uh, being read out aloud in a gathering of the church in Corinth? Uh, That's what the letter was designed for. It was written in order to be read uh, to the congregation. And if you were there, uh, a Corinthian Christian, I wonder if you might be thinking to yourself, this is really hard. I mean, uh, for us, we need to apply this in our circumstance. We don't have pagan temples down the road, do we? Uh, There is one of 150 kilometres up the road. But, you know, what are the idols um, that we might allow to take the place of God in our lives? But for the Corinthians, this was a day-to-day issue that they faced. And it's the same for uh, Christians in parts of Asia uh, who, uh, who, who do, are surrounded by pagan temples with sacrifices and perhaps families that want to uh, get them involved in doing those things. But... Um, And so you can imagine a Corinthian Christian thinking, well, Paul, this is really hard. I mean, here I am, I'm living here in Corinth. Um, There's idolatry everywhere. And my parents, they worship at the idol's temple and they want me to come along to the the banquets. And what do I do? Uh, Paul, you don't know how hard it is. And to that person, Paul offers words of comfort in verse 13. In verse 13, he says that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond that uh, what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And the reality is that nobody is ever forced to sin, that um, sin uh, is always a choice that we make. And as hard as it is, we need to stand our ground. We need to fear God more than we fear man. We need to do what we know that God wants us to do, And to trust that God's way is always the best way and that God will be faithful to us, uh, that um, he will provide for us uh, the way to say no uh, to that sin and he will look after us. Uh, Put God first, resist resist temptation to sin and allow God 
to look after the consequences of that. Because he is our faithful heavenly father and he will care for you. It may be difficult, but put God first. Now, one of the problems in Corinth was that it was sometimes very difficult even to go down to the butcher shop and to, um, and to purchase meat that had not been offered up to an idol. And sometimes you'd know whether, you wouldn't know whether it had or whether it hadn't. So what's a Christian to do in that situation? Well, Paul kind of rounds off, he wraps up the discussion on this issue by putting forward a couple of scenarios and giving some um, simple answers to those questions. Uh, and in verses 25 to 30, Paul says, look, it's okay. You know, when you go down to the butcher, um, buy the meat, um, eat the meat, and just don't ask the question. Don't, don't make an issue out of it. Don't ask, has this food been offered to an idol? Right? Just, just eat the food. Just buy the food and eat it. No dramas there. It is a gift from God. Uh, or in verse 27, you know, what if a non-Christian invites you around to their place for a meal and you don't know what's happened to the food beforehand? Well, Paul says, well, food's food. Eat the food. Just don't ask the question. Don't make an issue out of it. Just, just enjoy what God has provided. But in verse 28, he raises another possible problem and I want to read this one out because this is a little bit more complex in verse 28 um, in verse 28 uh, but if anyone says to you uh, so you're at a meal at someone's place and there's other guests there and uh, someone says to you well this food has been offered in sacrifice then Paul says do not eat it both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake, uh, the other man's conscience, I mean, not yours, for why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So uh, what is he saying here? Well, Again, imagine that um, you're at this meal, you're about to tuck into a plate of you know, roast beef or whatever, and the person sitting next to you says, oh, by the way, just sort of let you know that that particular meat that was used for that, that was actually offered up at the temple uh, early on in the day. Um, what do you do? Well, presumably the reason the person's telling you this is because they think that they're being helpful. <laughs> Uh, because they would know that you're a Christian and they would know that uh, Christians do have objections to temple worship and that that might actually be a problem for you to eat that food. So assuming that that's correct, then the, right, the, best, the most appropriate thing to do is to not eat the food. Uh, not because you couldn't, but for the sake of what the other person thinks. Because the other person may well think that if you go ahead and eat the food, that you're actually comfortable about the idea of um, idol worship. And so, uh, therefore, uh, for that person's, the sake of that person's conscience, 
and the possibility of them actually thinking that uh, Christians compromise, then it's best not to. Um, and they might, be ju- they might actually judge you if you go ahead and do it. So Paul says, well, why should you know, I be judged uh, if I participate uh, in, in a meal that I've been thankful to God for? So I think that's the, the issue there. I think that um, uh, is what Paul is getting at. Now, um, I, you just don't, you've got the right to eat that food, but it's not appropriate if by eating it, it sends out the wrong message to somebody else. Um, over the past three weeks, we've, we've looked at these chapters 8, 9 and 10. Uh, they form a, a unit of thought uh, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And they're a unit of thought because there is a big message that comes through in these chapters. And the big message is summed up in verses 23 and 24. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. And that's probably one of the slogans that was around in Corinth at the time. But Paul says, nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Uh, We Christians have got certain freedoms, certain spiritual rights. But most of all, our freedom is a freedom to slavery. Our freedom is a freedom to serve God and to serve others above ourselves. That's not the way that the world views freedom. Uh, Freedom in the world's eyes is the freedom to do as you please, to look after number one. But freedom in the Christian sense is the freedom to put yourself last, to reverse the effects of the fall, to put God first, others second, and self at the bottom. And that affects this issue of being too settled in the Christian life. As I said, it's good to be settled in the Christian life if that means being established. But what are the problems? Well, pride is a problem, isn't it? Um, Thinking that we are standing firm and yet not being careful about falling and slipping into Satan's trap. I'll give you an example of that. Um, years ago, uh, in another church, um, when I give examples, by the way, of something that happened in church, it's usually not this church, right? <laughs> so you don't have to start thinking, oh, was that me that he's talking about? <laughs> uh, years ago, in another church, I was leading a men's Bible study group, and, uh, and we were talking one night about something which I think men and women need to talk about uh, um, amongst themselves as Christians, and that's the issue of adultery, uh, because um, uh, you know that's something which Satan wants us all to be involved in if we're married, um, and he's got lots of tricks up his sleeve uh, to trap people into adultery. 
And uh, so we were talking about some of those tricks um, for the purpose that we would actually be alert to them and be able to avoid them as Christian men. Uh, One of the men in the group was an elder in the church. That's why I mentioned it's another church, so that you're not thinking which elder was this. (laughs) Uh, He was an elder in the church, and uh, and I've been involved in several churches, by the way. Uh, He was an elder in the church, um, and... And he was quite adamant. You know, he was one of the congregational leaders, but he was, he was dead set certain. He said, I could never commit adultery. Never. I would never do it. It could never happen in my marriage. Now, at one level, he might have been expressing that it's not his desire. <laughs> but I had to think to myself, that's the kind of attitude uh, that when a person has that attitude, they're the one I've got to be looking out for. Um, they're the one who's more likely to uh, fall into adultery because they let their guard down. They don't see their propensity to do such a thing. And it's a defective view of the human heart. Be careful, says Paul lest you fall. The second problem with being too settled in the Christian life is what we saw last week. And remember we looked at that issue of um, being inflexible. Uh, We can become so set in our ways and we can just be the kind of people who love to stand up for our rights. We want to push our agenda Uh, We want to stand up for our preferences, uh, even if by doing that we're making it difficult for other people to even hear the gospel. Um, Our preferences about how we do church, our preferences about, you know, being picky about how we will engage with non-Christians and wanting to engage on our turf and not on their turf. But the big message of these chapters is that although we have rights, that we give up those rights. We sacrifice those rights. We give up our personal preferences for the sake of others. That they might be able to hear the gospel of Jesus and be saved. In chapter 9, Paul said, I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. Take a look at how Paul concludes our passage today and it will be the way I conclude this sermon as well. In uh, verse 31, he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Put God first. (laughs) Don't be flexible about that. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. What about you? Are you prepared to follow the example of Paul? who gave up 
his freedoms, his liberties, uh, who when he wanted to reach Gentiles would go and sit and eat pork with them, as repulsive as that would have been to a Jewish stomach. Are you prepared to put yourself out for the well-being of others? Are you prepared to follow the example of Christ, who, by the way, followed the example uh, of Paul, who followed the example of Christ, who gave up his heavenly home and stooped into our world, became one of us for our sakes? You prepared to do that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the incredible truths that we find in your word. And we pray, Father, that we would be uh, inflexible people when it comes to the truth and when it comes to godliness. Uh, Help us, Father God, uh, not to be so confident in ourselves that we uh, neglect to... um, resist temptation and fall. May we be inflexible about the truth and about holiness. And Father, may we be completely flexible when it comes to serving other people, putting their interests before our own, particularly when it comes to serving them with the gospel Uh, to be like Paul who was prepared to become all things to all men, to to be like them, uh, to enter into their world, to engage with them on their turf so that people would be saved. Father, change us, we ask. Help us to be less selfish. Help us to be more, more like Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.